Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Have a little bit of a surprise episode for you this week, investigators, dropping before our next long series, December 17th. And friends, it is a delightful ride through so many spiderwebs with the theme of debutantes that keeps popping up in my research for Done and Done. There was no better time to bring the legendary six Mitford sisters into the mix. These six women have a front row seat to so many decades and so many players in the 20th century, not to mention being players themselves. Once you know about the Mitford sisters, each one of them so very different, but all so much involved in so many multiple decades within. World events, high society, literature, you will never forget them. Once you know about them, you may be surprised where these gals pop up. I have a terrific introduction here from James Wolcott, writing in May 2016 for Vanity Fair in a piece called That Mitford Mystique. For the sake of clarity, not to mention sanity, let's fill out the lineup card first. Scion of an aristocratic family that traced its heritage back to the Norman Conquest, David Freeman Mitford, who would become Baron Reedsdale and his wife Sidney, bestowed upon the world six daughters in order of birth Nancy, Pam, Diana, Unity, Jessica, and Deborah, and a son, Tom. They grew up in a series of country houses and cottages where their eccentricities and enthusiasms flowered like orchids. Only the son was formally schooled, owing to finances, as much as to male entitlement. The Mitfords were socially privileged, but not economically flush. The girls' education was a more spotty haphazard affair, with then-mother and an array of governesses teaching lessons in reading, arithmetic, and French, leaving big blanks in the curriculum. Left to their own madcap devices, the girls formed a tribal bond, speaking their own language and minting a clattering thicket of nicknames for then parents. Dad was Farver, Mum was Muv, one another, Unity was Bobo, Diana was Honks, Jessica was Decca, Deborah was Debo, and so on. Then nannies, governesses, menagerie of pets, and anyone else who strayed across their radar. Although taken to extremes by the Mitfords, with then shrieks of laughter and floods of tears, as Nancy would later put it, this sort of upper-class twittering was very common in the pre- and post-war eras among the smart set. As anyone who has waded knee-deep through the footnotes explaining nicknames Barnacled in-jokes, veiled allusions, and genealogical connections, who was whose idiot cousin, in the biographies and journals of the period can wearily attest. What elevated the Mitfords above the prattling privileges of their upbringing and put their reputation on a collision course with history was the fissure in the household between the two raging ideologies that would rip apart the 20th century fascism, and communism. When they talked about what they wanted to be when they were grown-ups, writes Mary S. Lovell and the Sisters, the saga of the Mitford family, Unity would say, I'm going to Germany to meet Hitler, and Decca would say, I'm going to run away and be a communist. And so they did. Flighty as they may have appeared, the Mitford girls did not lack for follow-through. Let's investigate. Mitford sisters, all six of them, all with front row seats to the events of the 20th century, and they're really famous, not for doing much, at least in their early life, but then they will all take on legendary status, each in their own way. Again, the six girls are not the only kids. There is one son, one lone son, 
a little bit like the opposite of the Osmonds that had all boys and one girl. We have the flip in the Mitford family. Father and Muv have seven kids within 16 years. So you have the Mitford family almost with two different sets of families in one. Let's give a little bit of time to Mama and Papa here first, because you need to know them to understand how it all shakes down. David Bertram Ogilvy Freeman Mitford is father. That's what the kids call him, father to us. Old David, he's the second son and primogeniture, right? No one expects David to do too much. The expectation just isn't there, as he's the second son. David is the son of Algernon Bertram Freeman Mitford and Clementine Gertrude Helen Ogilvy. They will style themselves the Mitfords, not the Freeman Mitfords. And their line dates back to the 14th century. They are landed gentry from Northumberland, having estates in Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire, And David, well, is kind of a weird kid. He's eccentric, he's prone to fits of rage, and David doesn't really give one hoot about reading or education. One of his more common boasts in life is that he's only read one book because there's only one book that he likes, and that one book that's the one and only item on the top of David's reading list is Jack London's White Fang. David's lack of academic excellence means that David is not going to Eton. David's older brother will go to Eton. All of the hopes of the family are really pinned on that older brother. David instead goes to Radley. David will be in the army, but David will fail his exam for Sandhurst. So instead, David is going to go and going to get a regular job working for a tea planter. Now, by this time, David is met a girl. He meets her in 1894. David's 16, and she's 14, and her name is Sydney Bulls. She's the daughter of Thomas Gibson Bulls, who was a journalist, as well as a conservative MP. Thomas Gibson Bulls, also back in 1863, created a little magazine you may have heard of called Vanity Fair, and later will create another women's magazine called The Lady. David and Sydney will marry in 1904, February 1904 to be exact, and holy cats, nine months later, first kid Nancy appears in November 1904. David and Sydney, father and Muv, wasted no time, these two. They will have six living children here through the remaining years. I want to go ahead and set the stage. David, being the second son, he's not exactly top notch in the brains, or temperament department. The family will live in stately homes, but also live in poverty in these stately homes. The girls are in lockdown, essentially, genteel poverty. David hates a bunch of marginalized groups. He loathes foreigners. He loathes Catholics. David doesn't like any group of people who are different than what David knows. He just can't handle it. So his idea is to keep his girls close. They all will grow up to be strong-minded and confident, but it's an odd flex here. Within the home, predestination and superstitions and poltergeists abound. And mom is super domesticated, which is a little bit unusual for the time. Typically, upper crust aristocracy has staff to do things for them, but not Sydney. Sydney will buy hens so they can sell those eggs to London restaurants. The family will not use linen napkins as for the cost for laundering them. The children are on a kosher diet. There is a belief at the time that Jewish people don't get cancer. No shellfish, Sausage or bacon for the family. Medicine? Ha, don't be ridiculous. (laughs) No medicines allowed. The Mitfords are a real, we'll do it ourselves kind of family. You only go to the doctor if you're practically already dead. Of course, we know there's no formal schooling for the girls. 
An additional reason for this, David does not want his girls playing hockey for the simple reason of he doesn't want them to get thick calves. There is a whole line of governesses. There's one beloved nanny. Her name is Bloor. Bloor is firm but fair, but the girls really all kind of left to their own devices. And they have a lot of them, girls and devices. This episode is going to focus on the Mitford sisters, but do note here there is one son, Thomas, Tom. And Tom has different rules. Where all of the Mitford girls are sheltered at home, Tom, the son, will go to Eton. There's not the same kind of thing for him as there is for his sisters. Tom is treated a little bit differently. But do you know that the Mitford sisters are all stacked with brains and beauty and humor? The girls are always together. Again, educated privately at home, tutors are mostly useless. The family does have a very large library, all the books they could want. All of the girls are packed with imagination. Again, they're making up private languages that only they know and speak. They will talk in this language. They will have nicknames for each other, sometimes unkind ones. But these girls only socialize with each other. Maybe a cousin here or there, but I really want to stress to you how insular this upbringing is and what an opposite thing their growing up is contrasted to when the girls decide to take on the world all in their own and very different ways. We talked about the Mitfords almost being two different sets of families. So let's talk about the first set here, Nancy, Pamela, and Diana. Nancy is the first of the Mitford children born November the 28th, 1904. She is the eldest, and Nancy is one of the bright young people in London's social scene. Nancy is witty and has a biting sense of humor. The thing about Nancy's life, though, if it were examined in a separate lens from all of her famous sisters, it would be considered remarkable. Nancy was accomplished and successful in a time when it was extremely difficult for women to have an identity apart from their marriage. Unfortunately for Nancy, her personality, beauty, and intelligence appear far less significant than they all would deserve simply because her family was so exceptional. One thing Nancy is most often associated and remembered for is the you and non-you. Nancy creates this to describe the aristocracy and the non-aristocracy. You, the letter, is for upper class, and non-you is for the aspiring middle class. Nancy does have a lifelong friendship with Evelyn Waugh. Nancy was a popular novelist and biographer, and many of her books are still very popular today. Her earlier works, written out of the need for money, were called Highland Fling, Chocolate Pudding, and Wigs on the Green. Some of Nancy's better-known works are 1945's The Pursuit of Love, 1949's Love in a Cold Climate, The Blessing in 1951, and Don't Tell Alfred in 1960. Many of Nancy's books are known for characters based on family and friends. She has said that the characters of Uncle Matthew and Aunt Sadie in The Pursuit of Love are based exclusively on her mother and father. Nancy Mitford also wrote a regular column in the Sunday Times in the 1950s, and continued as a journalist for the rest of her life. Sadly, Nancy was not lucky in love. She spent many years pursuing a relationship with and even becoming unofficially engaged to her brother's friend and one-time lover, Amish St. Clair Erskine, the second son of the fifth Earl of Rosslyn. Amish St. Clair Erskine was gay, which may have made him a convenient and appealing choice for Nancy, who didn't really seem to desire marriage, but knew that it was something expected of her. Unfortunately for Nancy, Erskine pined after her brother Tom Mitford for a very long time, 
after Tom begins to exclusively date women. Erskine was never serious about marrying Nancy, but Nancy would not give in and admit the relationship was destined to fail. This caused much frustration and embarrassment for the Mitford parents. Eventually, in 1933, Amish Erskine will break off the relationship, much to Nancy's despair and shame. At the age of 28, Nancy's prospect for marriage and children seemed to be slim. But in a very fast twist of fate, Nancy will meet a handsome man named Peter Rod, and Peter Rod proposes to Nancy shortly after they meet. Never mind that Peter's proposal was likely a joke that he had played on numerous other women previously. But Nancy Mitford wasn't giving him an out, and the engagement was quickly announced. Peter Rod was described as arrogant and boring, and some of her friends speculated that in fact Nancy never actually loved him, and he certainly did not love her. Regardless, the couple married in 1933, and do not divorce until 1957, which seems like maybe they worked it out, but let me tell you that their union was not a happy one. They suffered through fertility issues and constant infidelity from both partners. Nancy and Peter separated long, long before their actual divorce. Always a Francophile, Nancy permanently moved to Paris in 1946, never returning to England to live. Nancy also had a long-term romantic relationship with Gaston Paluski, a French colonel. Nancy was passionate about Paluski. He is described as the love of her life. However, Gaston Paluski was not as passionate about Nancy, and the romance never resulted in a happy or stable relationship. Nancy continued to write novels, biographies, and articles for the rest of her life. She was also a respected book reviewer, as well as a prolific letter writer. In June of 1973, Nancy Mitford died of Hodgkin's lymphoma. She was cared for in her final days by her sisters, Pamela, Diana, and Deborah. Nancy Mitford is buried at the family's estate in Swinbrook. Next up in our Mitford sister lineup, we have Pamela. Pamela? Born November 25th, 1907, three years difference between Pamela and her older sister Nancy. Pamela was often referred to as woman by her sisters. And Pamela is a little bit different than every other Mitford sister. Pamela loved living in the country. She doesn't crave the spotlight or the social scene in the way that many of her other sisters do. Pamela in the Mitford family is often forgotten or overlooked. She's not as flashy or as exciting as her sisters, but Pamela was a compelling person in her own right. Although she had no desire to draw attention to herself or her own accomplishments, Pamela was nonetheless a woman of impressive ability and talents. She was always a calm and stable member of the Mitford family, and Pamela's sisters often turned to her for support. Private, practical, and self-reliant, Pamela was an avid horsewoman. She loved animals, especially her dogs. Pamela also loves gardening and cooking. A little bit of an interesting thing here, Pamela was extremely knowledgeable about breeding and caring for farm animals. One of Pamela's bigger claims to fame, she is considered a poultry expert and is credited with introducing the Appenzeller Spitzhauben breed chickens to Britain. No tiny feat. How does Pamela do this? Pamela hides their eggs in a chocolate box, which goes through customs traveling from Switzerland. In 1936, Pamela marries the brilliant millionaire physicist Derek Jackson. Pamela and Derek never have children, but they will care for Diana's children, Next sister up, hold on for that, during Diana's internment during much of World War II. After the war ended, Pamela and Derek will move to Ireland to escape Britain's super tax. Sadly for Pamela, Derek will fall in love with another woman and Pamela will give him a divorce. Derek Jackson was rumored to be bisexual and ended up being married a total of six times. Nonetheless, Derek and Pamela remain close friends 
to his death in 1982. After the divorce, Pamela will move to Switzerland with her companion and likely lover, Italian horsewoman, Guadita Tomasi. Pamela Mitford dies peacefully on April the 12th, 1994 from a blood clot. She is also buried at the family estate in Swinbrook. And here we are at the last of our first set of daughters, Diana. Diana is born June 17th, 1910. So three years between Diana, her older sister Pamela, six years between Diana and Nancy. Diana is the fourth child and third daughter. Son Tom has come along in this mix. And Diana, holy cats, she's beautiful, she's charming, she's clever, she is kind and well-liked by her siblings. But Diana, unlike her sister Pamela, Diana feels bored and unsatisfied by her isolated, protected life in the English countryside. Diana longs for more excitement, more stimulation. Diana is often the center of attention, especially when her brother Tom would bring home his friends when on break from Eton College. Many a friend of Tom's, many a fella, fell for Diana Mitford, including Randolph Churchill, the younger brother of Winston Churchill. Randolph fell in love with Diana in 1926 and never quite got over her turning him down. In 1928, shortly after being presented to court, Diana met Brian Guinness at a society ball in Grubsner Square. Brian's family's brewing fortune made the Guinnesses one of England's richest families, owning not one but two large homes in London, a portion of the Sussex coast, a huge estate in Hampshire, land in Dublin, and a flat in Paris. Brian was also the heir to the barony of Moyne. When Brian introduced Diana to his mother and told her that Diana could even cook, <laughs> Brian's mother quietly muttered, I've never heard of such a thing. It's too clever. But Brian Guinness was 22, newly graduated from Oxford, and by all accounts, he was kind and handsome and gentle. Brian was a writer and very interested in the arts. Less than a month after meeting, Brian Guinness proposes to Diana. Diana's parents originally object due to the young age of the couple. However, Diana and her sisters finally convince father and mother, and they will finally agree to the marriage. Brian Guinness completely besotted with Diana, and Diana's fond of Brian, but primarily saw marrying him as a path to freedom and escape from her family, which Diana wants nothing more to do. Diana and Brian Guinness do marry at St. Margaret's Westminster on June the 30th, 1929. Diana was 18 years old. If you connected those dates, Diana was the first Mitford girl to get married. The young Guinnesses were an immediate hit in London's social scene among the bright young people, the bright young things, and the Bloomsbury set. We've got a fun Not Done Yet episode on Patreon coming up about the bright young things this week. Diana was a coveted party guest and herself often hosted glamorous parties. Brian and Diana have a home near Buckingham Palace. The couple quickly have two sons, Jonathan, born in 1930, and Desmond, born in 1931. From all outside appearances, it looks like Diana has a perfect life. But for all of its glamour and wealth, Diana will think of her life with Brian Guinness as a gilded cage. They don't really have any common interests, Diana, having now found some freedom out from her parents and family in the country, even though she's in the city, she's numb with boredom. She finds her husband intolerably dull. Enter the year 1932, and Diana, in this year, will meet Sir Oswald Mosley at a party hosted by Emerald Cunard. Oswald Mosley was the handsome, charismatic, and powerful leader of the British Union of Fascists. Mosley was married 
and refused to divorce his wife, although he was widely and openly known to be a huge womanizer. Diana Mitford finds Oswald Mosley exhilarating, and the two begin a passionate affair shortly after they meet. By 1933, Diana had left her husband Brian Guinness and all of the grandeur of her life to become Oswald Mosley's mistress, scandalizing her family as well as the rest of London society. Diana moves out of that home near Buckingham Palace into a rundown flat in Belgravia, just around the corner from Oswald Mosley, his wife, and their three children. Oswald had been married well over a decade by this point. Oswald Mosley had married Lady Cynthia Curzon in 1920 at the Chapel Royal in St. James's Palace in London. King George V and Queen Mary were in attendance at that wedding. Lady Cynthia Curzon was the daughter of Earl Curzon of Kettleston, who had been the Viceroy of India from 1859 to 1925, as well as the Foreign Secretary from 1919 to 1924. Lady Cynthia's mother was Mary Leiter, an American mercantile heiress. Cynthia herself was a politician and a member of Parliament in the Labour Party. Please don't fool yourself thinking that Diana Mitford Guinness was the first lady that Oswald ever fooled around with. It's almost embarrassing to tell you this part, but it's true. Some of Oswald Mosley's more tawdry affairs before he meets Diana were with his wife's sister, Lady Alexandra Metcalf, as well as both Lady Alexandra and Lady Cynthia's stepmother, Grace Curzon, Marchioness Curzon of Kettleston. Although Oswald Mosley does not believe in divorce, he was very free soon to marry Diana because Lady Cynthia does pass away of parentonitis in 1933 at the age of 34. Oswald Mosley is featured as a villain in seasons five and six of the very popular British crime show, Peaky Blinders. Doesn't take too long for Diana to get her man. Diana and Mosley are secretly married on October the 6th, 1936, in the home of Joseph Goebbels. Yep, attended by Hitler. Hitler shows up and gives the couple a framed photo of himself as a wedding gift. Diana and Mosley do have two sons, Alexander, born in 1938, and Max, born in 1940. It is in 1940 that the British government deems Oswald Mosley's agitation and rhetoric to simply be too dangerous to tolerate. Mosley is detained in Holloway Prison less than two weeks after Winston Churchill becomes Prime Minister. Unbeknownst to Diana, her older sister Nancy had had a little meeting with MI5, convinced MI5 that Diana, too, also presented a significant public danger. Diana was also interred at Holloway Prison just 11 weeks after giving birth to her fourth son. Nancy's role in this imprisonment, though, is not revealed for over 40 years. The Mosleys were never officially charged or convicted of a crime, but they will both remain in Holloway Prison until March 18, 1943. The decision to release the Mosleys was fiercely debated in the House of Commons, and even when they are released, Diana and Oswald will remain under house arrest as well as police supervision until the end of the war. Even in interviews that Diana Mitford gave well into her 80s, she spoke of Oswald Mosley and his ideals with great passion and conviction. In her later years, she wrote several books, including a biography of Wallace Simpson titled The Duchess of Windsor, based on her personal encounters and relationship with Simpson. Diana Mitford died at the age of 93 in August of 2003. She is also buried at the family estate in Swinbrook next to her sister's. And that is our first set, Nancy, Pamela, Diana. But we have another set of Mitford sisters. Group number two, Unity, Jessica, and Deborah. Let's talk about this next set of sisters. 
Unity. Goodness. Oh, Unity. She's born August 8th, 1914, the first of the second set of sisters. Unity is born Unity Valkyrie Mitford. The thing you want to know about Unity, she was conceived while her parents were prospecting for gold in a small Canadian mining community named Swastika. Unity was always a little bit of an odd child. Unity is the only one of the Mitford daughters who exasperated her parents so much that she was sent away to school. Not that it mattered, Unity was expelled from not one, not two, but three different boarding schools. The youngest sister, Deborah, remembers that at meals, if something upset Unity, Unity would simply stare off and slowly slide off her chair under the table and refuse to come out until whoever was upsetting her, usually her father, had left. Unity was presented at court and society in the spring of 1932. Unity was six feet tall, and in addition to her peculiar dinner time behavior, Unity really loves to shock people. It's her thing. So as a debutante in her season of coming out, Unity would take her white pet rat named Ratular, or her pet snake, Unity's pet snake's name is Enid, and just wrapping it around her neck to go to parties. By her teen years, Unity had started to show a great interest in Hitler and Nazism. At that time, Unity and Jessica shared a room. Now, Jessica, who we're going to meet in just a moment, a little bit of a lead-in here, Jessica had already had a strong leaning towards communism, and these drastically opposing beliefs of each sister were exhibited throughout their bedroom. Divided by a line down the middle, Unity's side of the room displays pictures of Hitler and swastikas, while Jessica's side of the bedroom has pictures of linen and hammers and sickles. While it has been speculated that Unity's initial enthusiasm for Nazism and Hitler was just a way for her to shock those around her, as well as differentiate herself, it is clear that soon Unity was fully devoted to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Diana's relationship and subsequent marriage to Oswald Mosley encourages Unity's interests, and here Unity begins attending fascist and eventually Nazi rallies with Diana and Oswald Mosley. After attending the Nuremberg rally with the Mosleys in 1933, Unity becomes fully obsessed with Hitler. In 1934, Unity will enroll in a school in Munich near to the Nazi party headquarters. At this time, Unity begins to stalk Hitler. Legit stalk. She was able to find out his favorite cafe, which is the Osteria Bavaria, and Unity will go and hang out there every day, same table, just waiting for Hitler every day to increase her chances of meeting her idol. Unity's strategy and perseverance will pay off. It'll take 10 months, though. After 10 months of going to the Osteria Bavaria daily, Hitler finally invites Unity to join him at his table. After this meeting, Unity writes a letter to her father about the meeting, writing, It was the most wonderful and beautiful day of my life. I'm so happy that I wouldn't mind a bit dying. I suppose I'm the luckiest girl in the world. For me, he is the greatest man of all time. I'm sure that her father loved to read that sentence. Unity's middle name, again, Valkyrie, along with the knowledge that her grandfather was a close friend of Richard Wagner, who was one of Hitler's idols, appealed to all of Hitler's superstitious beliefs. And he begins to believe that Unity was sent to him as a special good luck charm. Unity soon becomes part of Hitler's inner circle and regularly attends Nazi events. Unity will remain close to Hitler for the next five years. It's not just in her personal relationship that she is close to Hitler. See, Unity also will take every opportunity she can to speak about her fervent anti-Semitic beliefs. She'll write her beliefs in an open letter 
to Julius Stryker's paper, Der Sturmer, which reads, The English have no notion of the Jewish danger. Our worst Jews work only behind the scenes. We think with joy of the day when we will be able to say England for the English. Out with the Jews. Heil Hitler. There's a P.S. added to this already terrible thing. P.S. Please publish my name in full. God, Unity Mitford. I want everyone to know that I'm a Jew hater. That is going to definitely be recorded in time. Unity. Obviously, Unity's letter causes a great scandal. Public outrage abounds in Britain, but Unity doesn't care about that. Unity's only concern in life is pleasing Hitler. Hitler will award Unity with an engraved golden swastika badge, as well as many other perks. Here we are, though, in the mid-1930s, and tensions across Europe are escalating. Unity makes a promise that if England declared war on Germany, she would kill herself. In 1939, Hitler warns both Diana and Unity that war with England was a certainty, and the two of them, Diana and Unity, should return home. Diana returns to England, but despite her father's pleas and Hitler's advice, Unity refuses to leave Germany. On September the 3rd, 1939, Unity goes to the English Garden in Munich and shoots herself in the head with a pearl-handed pistol that Hitler had given her. Unity survives and was hospitalized in Munich. Hitler expressed feeling responsible for Unity's suicide attempt. He visits her often in the hospital. He will pay for her hospital bills. And when Unity is well enough, Hitler arranges for her to go home. Two months after the shooting, Unity is well enough to at least be transferred to a hospital in Bern, Switzerland, where Unity's mother and her sister Deborah will meet Unity to bring her home. Deborah has written and spoken about this experience of collecting Unity and said that she and her mother were completely unprepared for what they saw. Surgeons had been unable to remove the bullet from Unity's skull. She had lost a great deal of weight. Her hair was still matted with dried blood, not having been washed since the shooting. Deborah also said that Unity was like a stranger with a changed personality, unable to walk and could only talk with great difficulty. Unity would never recover from her suicide attempt. She would remain incontinent and childish for the rest of her life. Some family acquaintances compared her to a quote-unquote sophisticated child. Upon Unity's return to England, many British folks felt that Unity should be imprisoned as a traitor. However, the Home Secretary intervened and Unity was allowed to remain with her family. Unity eventually dies in 1948 of meningitis caused by cerebral swelling around the bullet that was still lodged in her skull. In the early 2000s, a variety of allegations began to surface that Unity Mitford had given birth to Hitler's baby at a private maternity hospital for unwed mothers. In this story, the baby was given up for adoption immediately after birth. Deborah, Duchess of Devonshire, and Unity's sister publicly denies these allegations the validity or falseness of these claims has never been proven. There was also a less likely allegation that her attempted suicide was all faked in order to allow Unity to return to England without repercussions of her alliance with Hitler, but because there are medical records proving her injuries, these allegations have been widely disregarded. Oh my, two more Mitford sisters. Let's meet Jessica. Oh, Decca. Decca is born September 11th, 1917, the middle Mitford daughter of our second set. And let me tell you, few people have had a life as full of adventure, controversy, and purpose as Jessica Mitford. Always a determined child, Jessica, known to her family as Decca, began saving her running away fund from a very early age. Jessica, more than any of her other sisters, she strongly resents not being allowed to attend a school or receive a formal education. 
Jessica is known as the red sheep of the family, showing her leftist political leanings very early in life. In 1937, when Jessica was 19, she will meet and fall in love with Esmond Romilly, who happens to be her second cousin. Esmond Romilly was the nephew of Clementine and Winston Churchill, and there have been never substantiated rumors that Esmond Romilly may have possibly even been Winston Churchill's illegitimate son. At the time of their meeting, Romilly was recovering from an illness he had acquired while fighting with the international brigades in the Spanish Civil War. Even though he was only 18, Esmond Romilly had a history of delinquency and rebellion, espousing communist beliefs at an early age and openly criticizing his background and class. By the time Romilly left to fight in Spain, he was in favor of democratic socialism. Jessica firmly believed in Romilly's political views and found his activism very appealing. To her, this seemed like the perfect escape from her life that she found increasingly depressing and without purpose. After hearing about Romilly's adventures fighting against tyranny, Jessica begs him to take her with him when he returned, and he immediately agreed. The two fall in love and hatch a plan to sneak Jessica out of England. She will withdraw the money from her running away fund to pay for that trip. Oh, teenagers have been lying to parents since the beginning of time. Jessica will tell her parents that she's going on vacation with a friend's family, and her parents are pleased by this news and hope that the vacation will help alleviate Jessica's obvious unhappiness and discontentment. The Reedsdales actually take her to Victoria Station. Mom and Dad wave goodbye, thoroughly believing Jessica's story. Jessica Mitford and her father would never see each other again. Shortly after Jessica leaves, though, Mom and Dad do become a little suspicious of Jessica's whereabouts and follow up. They do a little checking. It doesn't take Favre and Muv long to learn that the vacation with friends was only a ruse. That is not the true story. Now, Mom and Dad Mitford are frantic, not having any idea where their daughter is, who she's with, or even if she's still alive. Friends, it is hard to imagine the scandal and fervor this causes in England. The story of the peer's daughter and Churchill's red nephew was the headline story all around Europe. Jessica's fleeing with Romilly came after the scandals of her sister Diana, divorcing Brian Guinness to have an affair with Oswald Mosley, and also her sister Unity publicly supporting Hitler so that the Mitford family is now becoming infamous for their daughter's behaviors. Oh my. Several attempts are made to bring Jessica and Esmond Romilly home. The British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden gets involved and England threatens to stop sending aid to the Spanish rebels if the two teenage runaway lovers were not returned. Eventually, a British naval warship was sent to collect them. Holy cats, can you believe it? The couple was essentially forced to agree because they didn't want to be responsible for causing harm to the Spanish cause. However, they refused to be returned to England and would only board the naval warship if they were allowed to exit in Bayonne near the border of Spain and France. Nancy Mitford will meet the couple there. Now you can imagine, Mom and Dad want to separate Jessica and Esmond, but all ideas of this happening and separating our two lovers are abandoned once they discover Jessica is pregnant. There's nothing to do at this point except arrange a hasty wedding, which takes place in June 1937. Jessica and Esmond's daughter, Julia, was born in December of that same year. With Jessica far along into her pregnancy and the couple's visas revoked and no money, the young Romilly's had few options but to return to England. A friend allowed them to live in a small flat in London's East End, and their daughter, Julia, was born in December of that same year, but sadly, died in May of 1938, just the next year, from measles. After a series of short moves, Jessica and Esmond 
Escape to America on February 18, 1939, aboard the SS Arania. In New York City, the Romilies will settle into Greenwich Village. Slowly, they find jobs and build a life together. Romilly was a freelance journalist assigned to the Washington Post to write about the couple's adventures. The series of articles were titled Baby Blue Bloods in Hobohemia. Jessica and Romilly travel around the U.S. doing a variety of jobs, but when World War II breaks out in Europe, the couple will return to Washington, where Romilly volunteers with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Jessica was pregnant with their second child when he left for duty. In November 1941, Esmond Romilly dies when his aircraft was lost over the North Sea. Their daughter, Constancia, was born February 9, 1941, less than three months after her father's death. The rest of Jessica's life only became more eventful and full of controversy. In 1943, she married American civil rights lawyer Robert Truhoft. Jessica becomes an American citizen and has two sons with Robert, a son Nicholas, born in 1944, another son Benjamin, born in 1947. Residing in California, the 1950s were a decade extremely active for Jessica. She worked tirelessly on a variety of civil rights and political causes. Jessica and her husband were active members of the Communist Party during the height of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, both refusing to name people or groups or testify about any of their participation in communist activities. The couple resigned from the American Communist Party in 1958, but continued to have extreme left-wing political views. Jessica doesn't escape tragedy through this time, though. In 1955, her second son, Benjamin, was hit by a bus and killed at the age of seven. From the 1960s until the end of her life in 1996, Jessica continued her activism and also became an investigative journalist. In 1963, she published The American Way of Death, which criticized the funeral industry. The book was a bestseller and prompted Congress to make reforms. Some of her other notable works were Hans and Rebels. This is her autobiography, published in 1960. The Trial of Dr. Spock in 1970, and The Making of a Muckraker in 1979. Jessica Mitford died of lung cancer on July 23, 1996. Her ashes were scattered at sea. One last sister, the baby of the family, Deborah. Holy cats, Deborah. Born March 31, 1920, the baby of the Mitford family. Not many women can say that she danced with John Fitzgerald Kennedy, took tea with Adolf Hitler, had a great friendship with Kathleen Kitt Kennedy, who was also her sister-in-law, attended the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, and lived and managed one of the largest estates in England. But these are only a few of the extraordinary things that Deborah Mitford Cavendish, Duchess of Devonshire, experienced and accomplished in her life. Deborah was also the author of over 15 books, an ardent conservationist, and appointed Dame Commander of the Royal Victorian Order for her service to the Royal Collection Trust. The youngest of the Mitford children, Deborah, also known as Debo, was 16 years younger than her oldest sister, Nancy. As a child, poor Deborah was relentlessly teased by her siblings. Many of the intimate details we know about the Mitford family is because of Deborah's writings and interviews. Throughout her life, Deborah plays peacemaker between her more outspoken and opinionated siblings. Deborah's often overshadowed by the fame and notoriety of her older sisters, but Deborah really deserves enormous praise for her significant contributions as well as her fortitude and strength of character. In 1941, Deborah marries Lord Andrew Cavendish, the second son of the 10th Duke of Devonshire. When they married, her husband, the second son, right, was not supposed to inherit the Devonshire dukedom or Chatsworth estate, but Lord Andrew's older brother, William, Marquess of Hardington, and husband of Kit Kennedy 
was killed while fighting in World War II in 1944, leaving Deborah's husband, Lord Andrew Cavendish, becoming the heir of the Devonshire dukedom. Lord Andrew and Deborah do have seven children. Sadly, four of them die shortly after being born. Their three surviving children are Lady Emma Cavendish, born in 1943, Peregrine Cavendish, born in 1943, and Lady Sophia Cavendish, born in 1957. Impressively, Deborah was one of the first pioneers of commercializing Europe's stately homes and estates, which is something that many members of the aristocracy had been reluctant to do. Reluctant to do, of course, but necessary to do if the ancestral great homes across the land will survive. Some of these ventures that Deborah implements include tours, weddings, events, rentals, as well as retail and farm stores, catering and selling replications and designs of items from the Chatsworth collection. Deborah's involved in all aspects of the operation of Chatsworth and would even sometimes surprise tourist groups by leading their tour. Deborah wrote and sold several books about Chatsworth, including cookbooks and picture books of the gardens. Chatsworth has several hotels and some of the smaller buildings, including Bess of Hardwick's Hunting Tower, which can be rented as a holiday cottage. In a typical year, approximately 600,000 people visit the house, the garden, the farmyard of Chatsworth Estate. All of the proceeds from these activities and items go directly back into the upkeep of Chatsworth. This is a tremendous contribution and legacy that Deborah Mitford has made not just to her own family's estate, but to many of the ancestral estates in Europe. Deborah was the last surviving Mitford sister. Her death on September the 24th, 2014, marked the end of an era. In 2014, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, and Duchess Camilla at the time, now Queen Consort Camilla, personally attend Deborah's funeral. Deborah is buried at the Cavendish family burial ground on Chatsworth Estate. Oh, the Mitford sisters, they have left their mark most certainly onto the culture and world events with each of their extraordinary lives also very different. We have three follow-ups that spin off of these stories. In the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the bright young people Chatsworth Estate, as well as Kit Kennedy. Check out patreon.com slash done and done if you're interested in joining that community for ad-free and bonus episodes. Investigators, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Thank you for joining me today and for, again, supporting Done and Done, for your listening, for your kind reviews, for your emails, for joining our Patreon community. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Until we meet again, friends which might be sooner than you know, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.